One of the things that's great about being old is uh, you don't really have a future. So you have that burden lifted off you of having to plan for a future. I'm just doing what I do and I'll keep doing what I do until I can't do it anymore. And I don't have any career aspirations anymore. When I was a young actor, as a young playwright, I really wanted to be famous. I really wanted to be a known person in that. And I've uh, learned that that's not what it's about. It's about doing the work, doing good work, working with good people, and taking what you can get when you can get it. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. It's spring, y'all. Woo! Well, there's my Texas roots showing up. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited that warmer weather and longer days are coming. And, drum roll please, I just got my first vaccine. I am over the moon with all the hopeful feels right now. I'm ready to hug people. I really can't wait for everyone to get their shots and hope that we can open up and start traveling. Are you feeling it? And I'm so excited for you to meet today's guest. You know, I spend a lot of time looking for stories that I think will inspire you, and that has led me to make some terrific new friends this year. In fact, doing this podcast has been a total boon for broadening my horizons and meeting incredible people. But More and more as I do this podcast, I realize that I'm already surrounded by friends who are incredible people with amazing stories to tell. I need more superlatives here. Anyway, sometimes I just can't believe how lucky I am in the friend department. That said, my guest today is my friend, Mike Foley. Mike is an award-winning playwright, actor, and monologuist who spent 25 years working as both a playwright and a freelance speech and business writer for senior executives at Fortune 500 companies while happily married and raising two children. However, in his late 50s, he was faced with an abrupt and awful change when his wife Frances died suddenly. After her death, he stopped all artistic activities for two years to focus on his children and his own grief. When he began writing again, he found himself writing autobiographical one-person plays. He's since written and performed two award-winning solo plays titled Three Men and My Dead Wife. Mike is now 69 years old and going strong. He's happily remarried and is now working on a memoir that he describes as being (laughs) autobiographical-ish. I can't wait for you to meet him. But before we do, if you're a new listener, I want to let you know that I created a free guide for you designed to help you start taking the steps towards your next act. It's a workbook called Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. You can sign up to receive it as an email series with practical exercises that you can use over the course of several weeks to get past feeling stuck. I've had some very heartwarming feedback from people who've completed the series. One person said, it helped me focus on breaking out of repetitive patterns that keep me from moving forward toward my goals. That makes my heart sing to hear that. I'll remind you about the guide at the end of the episode and tell you where to sign up if you're interested. Also, I have an announcement at the end of the show regarding Mike's latest performance. Okay, here's Mike Foley. Let's go. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here, Yvonne. I am so excited to have you. I always get a little extra excited when it's um, when I have on somebody who I know as a friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I always like to let the audience know who, you know, how we connected. Mm-hmm. We connected through, well, I'd have to say it was through Dana Benningfield through New Jersey Rep. 
and another another really good friend of mine. And then you and I have since become friends in our own right mm -hmm. um, through doing photo sessions together and um, and and just, you know, I've become such a fan of your playwriting work over the years. Oh, thank you. It's so I am nice super excited to talk to you today. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll just kind of go back. I, I want to talk, you know, as, as the conversation is usually about reinvention mm -hmm. and the, the courage that it takes to step into reinventing yourself. And I know you've done that a couple of times in your life. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to let you take us back in, in, in your life a little bit. We'll hit the rewind button okay. <laughs> and uh, think about uh, where you want to start. Well, I've always sort of, orbited around uh, two stars, uh, writing and acting. Usually in my life, uh, I was very, very focused on acting for a while, really wanted to be an actor, wanted to be a working actor, and I was for a while. And uh, then the way things worked out, uh, I became a family man. I got married and had children, and it was much harder to go off and do regional theater for a while and have that kind of gypsy lifestyle that actors have to have. And so I reinvented myself as a writer. I started writing plays. And through writing plays, um, I fell into uh, a side career as a speech and business writer, freelance speech and business writer. Um, and it worked really well, th those two uh, things, because they're both writing. They're different kinds of writing, but they were both writing. And they shared some similarities. A good speech is like a good play. It's a story and it has a beginning, middle and end and has structure. So uh, I did that, you know, I, I sort of veered between the theater and writing plays and going off to see my plays being done and working on the plays and uh, then being called up by the, you know, the office of the president or CEO of some big corporation, Mike, would you come back in? I need some help. I'm doing, you know, a big speech uh, somewhere. So that worked really well for a while. Uh, uh, but I started to get a little frustrated with the playwriting and the theater in general, because I just didn't feel like I had as much control as I wanted to over the product. You know, it's a very co collaborative art form. That's part of the mm -hmm. strength, mm -hmm. but it's also a thing, you know, you're only as good as the people you're working with. And I was fortunate most of the time I was working with really good people, but sometimes there were just situations that made it difficult. Uh, so I was already exploring maybe writing memoir, uh, maybe getting into prose, something I hadn't really done much of. Uh, dialogue came easy to me, so it really felt comfortable as a playwright. Uh, and then the, the second major thing happened that changed my life is my, my wife of 25 years died suddenly uh, out of nowhere. It was a big surprise. Yeah. And um, I had been doing the playwright, you know, the playwriting and speech writing and very busy life, very happy life, but a very busy one. And this just, that just exploded, you know, her dying just exploded the, the, everything. Uh, my kids were traumatized. I was traumatized. Yeah. Um, I mean, it came out of nowhere, right? Like, it did. There it was, was no it, lead it was in. Three days from start to finish. Wow. Uh, she was perfectly healthy and then she was dead. Yeah. Um, and so I had to really realign very quickly. Um, I had to take care of my children who were very, you know, as I said, traumatized, and I uh, had to keep making money because uh, one, one, the oldest child had just graduated, was about to graduate from college when this happened, and the second one was had just finished her freshman year. So I no longer had the wherewithal, the energy to focus to do both of these things, so I had to let the theater go completely. I had to let mm -hmm. the playwriting go. Uh, and I spent the next two to three years getting my daughter through college and, you know, trying to help my kids orient to having lost their mother. Um, and I just had no energy for anything else. I mean, it took all the energy I could to get up, get up to my computer, write these uh, speeches or whatever else I'd been hired to write. And uh, I took every job that came my way. I'd been selective about jobs before to, to leave space for the playwriting. Now I just was you know, working 10, 12, 14 hours a day, just turning this stuff out. Yeah. Do you think that that was um, driven f by 
needing to bury yourself in work a little bit to get through it? Or do you, was it more for financial reason, reasons? It was, to, it, well, in my both? mind, I made it for financial reasons, mm-hmm. but I think it was definitely a way for me to cope. You know, it, it didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't as good anymore, which it took my clients two or three years to figure that out. Uh, I, mm-hmm. and I, but th- because I was still pretty good, but everything took for me took twice as long and was half as good. Mm. Uh, so I, I, str- I, I, it was good to have something to go, to go up to my office and work on and it kept my mind off of, uh, uh, the pain of grief, but I knew I had to find something else to, uh, and I knew I was, I, I, I knew, you know, the, the art thing kept calling me back in a way. I had started writing a memoir before Francis died and I had about 20 pages of it and I didn't know what to do with it. And I thought, well, maybe this could be a one person show. Maybe I could do that. I'd never done that. I didn't like one person shows in general. You're kidding. Um, yeah, I didn't like them at all because I thought they were so uh, me oriented. People got up and said, you know, I did this, then I did that, and then I felt bad about myself, and then I thought about it, and I decided not to feel bad about myself, and I succeeded. And it was like, that's so boring. Mm-hmm. Talk about yourself for so long. But uh, the memoir I'd started to write was about three different men who had been important to me in my life as I kind of veered between the speech writing and the playwriting. Cause I felt that I felt unbalanced by that for a long time. Like, what am I? Am I, am I a businessman? Am I a speechwriter for these corporate executives or am I a playwright in the theater? And I sort of over time figured out, well, you're both. You're both of those things. So it took me a long time to get there. And so I wrote, and these three men who I had prob- I had complicated relations with, I adored them. And they were really helpful to me, but they also drove me crazy from time to time. They were crazy people, uh, as, as very successful people often are. Um, and so uh, I wrote that I, I, was, uh, I was taking an audition class with uh, an actor director named Frank Licato. And I asked if I could bring in a little bit of what I was writing into the class and work on that instead of doing a monologue from Glass Menagerie or something, I would do this. Right. And he just loved it. He just said, this is great. This is great. You got to keep working on this. And I said, really? Because it's really just me talking about me. He said, no, no, this is really good. And he said, why don't you, I'm starting a new theater company. Why don't you come in and do a reading in our reading series? And I said, well, it's not finished. I don't have, I don't have, you know, I did everything I could to get out of this. Um, I said, it's, it's, I've only got 20 pages maybe. And it's just really three long, like 10 minute, three 10 minute monologues about these three guys. It's all I've got. I've got no story. There's no structure. There's nothing. He said, well, that doesn't matter. This is a developmental reading. We're just, we're just gonna, that's what this is for to find out what you got. Mm -hmm. So I was petrified. I was petrified to do this because the stuff was so personal and I hadn't acted in 25 years. And, um, I went, so I went in and thinking, this is going to be so boring. The audience is going to be asleep in five minutes. So, and I actually, I, I had to uh, read only one of them at the reading. I actually got Dana and her brother-in-law, Mark, uh, to come in and read the other two, because I was petrified. I didn't want to do the whole thing, but I did, knew I, I did have to hear it and I did have to do it. So uh, we did the read, and the audience just loved it. They just ate it up. They were like remarkably enthusiastic about it. And I was like, really, really? Uh, uh, so Frank said, look, uh, you finish this and I'll do a production of this next year on our first season. I'll schedule you in for a slot in the theater se- in the season. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I did it. I finished it up and then Frank directed and produced that first thing. It was successful there at, at, at Hudson Theater Works, which is the name of Frank's company in Weehawk and we did it in this great space. It's a water tower in Weehawk and you know what? It's like this 1880 uh, Florentine looking water tower that the city didn't know what to do with. So they sort of gave it to Frank to use as an arts venue and it was perfect for a one person play. So I did it there. I did six performances over two weekends and you know we did very well. 
And then I started doing it at other places and it always, people seem to like it. And then I went to the United Solo Festival and I, su I submitted it to, which is, uh, um, it's the biggest solo festival, performance festival in the world. And before COVID hit every year in the fall from September to November, they would do like 100, 125 different solo shows on Theater Row off Broadway. And I, I submitted it there and it got accepted. And uh, I ended up doing, if you sold out your show, you got another show is how that festival worked. And I ended up doing three shows of it. Wow. And um, and I did get to go see that. And, and you got to see that. Yes. I did, it, yeah. It, it, at the awards ceremony at the end, to my complete surprise, it won one of the awards. It won best uh, nonfiction show. And you know, today, you know, for a long time, I, I just... I kept thinking, well, nobody really likes it. They just know my wife died and they want to be nice to me, you know? So everybody's like pretending oh to really oh like God. it because, but I, when I was talking to the set designer of that first production at Hudson Theater Works, I had said to uh, uh, John Shimrock, uh, I said, he said, oh, I really love your play. I'm like, why? Why do you love it? Tell me why you love this play. And he said, well, because, you know, I've had mentors and I, not many people write about that relationship. And, and it's a relationship about mentors and it's about how, yeah, they're your mentors, but they're also really difficult people to deal with. Flawed human beings, right? Yeah. 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 So, so I was um, gonna back you up just a quick sure. second because um, so going back to, to you, you mentioned that you were in an acting class and I'm wondering how how long was it before you decided to, you know what, I'm going to go take an acting class. Cause it sounds like that was the first step outside mm -hmm. of your grief. Mm -hmm. Guessing. Yeah, Am that's I true. With yes. that? Well, you know, you had a question, I know in your, in your prep stuff about, you know, what stopped you. And it made me think that all my obstacles are internal. I have no external obstacles. And I have one of my closest friends is a therapist. And I said that to him once. And he said, God, if I can get my patients to understand that, I, I'd be out of a job. Absolutely. That's so true for all of us. We yes. all we are all limited by these internal the, the internal story we're telling ourselves, right? So when, I, when I decided to go from, you know, having been this playwright and speechwriter and then to this person doing one, you know, standing up on stage for an hour and 15 to an hour and a half and talking. I thought, well, not only am I, you know, I'm, I'm rusty from 25 years of not acting. That's the hard, one of the hardest things to do in performing is to stand up and hold the stage by yourself for that long. I'm, I'm putting an incredible show. I've got to figure out how to do this. So that's when I started taking, uh, I took Frank's class and, and it led to, and then later I took, uh, I went back to HB Studios where I'd studied when I was a young actor. And I took classes with a, uh, uh, an acting teacher named Carol Rosenfeld who's a very respected acting teacher. She was Uta Hagen's basically go-to person. She was like the substitute for Uta Hagen when she couldn't mm -hmm. teach. And, um, and I studied with Mercedes Rule, who had started, who uh, was a very well-known actress in the business, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, who had started teaching and um, spent two to three years basically trying to get my acting chops back before I uh, felt that I maybe had some idea what I was doing. And you were working on um, three men. Mm -hmm. First as a, had, had it occurred to you to do it as, as a theater piece before you went back to acting class or did that happen while you were in acting class? I think it happened while I was in the class. I was working on other monologues from plays for this class. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, you know, I got this piece that sounds like it could be done verbally, you know, like not necessarily as a reading piece, it could be a performance piece. Let me see. So I think bringing it in, I mean, if Frank had listened to it and said, well, that that doesn't really work as a theater piece. It's just you standing up there talking, there's no drama, there's nothing going on. If he'd said that, I would have dropped that idea right then. Uh -huh. It shows just, you know, how much power people can have over us in early stages. Yeah. And instead he pushed you and, and, yeah, and pushed you just past all your yeah. fears and all of your, all the things that you were through, all the roadblocks that you would have thrown yes. in the way for yourself. He yes. pushed you right past them. Right. Right. No, and I owe uh, Frank a great debt of gratitude for that. Uh, and I continue to work with him, uh, at, you know, on one person shows and I've been in two plays he's directed. 
that are, you know, not one person shows. Uh, kind of plays I like to do. I did Hamlet and I did uh, uh, Uncle Vanya with him. And those uh, are two plays I've always wanted to do. And yeah. So I'm excited to get back to that kind of acting too. I also, they Frank started a workshop as part of the theater company, an ongoing workshop called The Forge. And in that workshop, I developed my next one person show, My Dead Wife, which was about my dead wife. Right. And I think that's the show I was always aiming to write, but I had, I was too close to Francis's death to really write that for the first Oh show. my gosh, I can imagine, right? Yeah. And yeah. what's interesting to me is that your your first piece, Three Men, about your mentors, um, at least by the time I saw it as a finished piece, they had all passed away. Yeah. Right? And I, I, so I find it interesting that you were already dealing with the theme of, of grief in a way of, mm -hmm. of loss, right. you know, and looking back at a relationship, those relationships and what they were and what you'd lost right. and what you gained. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I had never thought of it like that. I think you really, uh, that's very incisive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I didn't get to see your, um, your live production of my dead wife but recently was fortunate enough to see the um the abridged version mm -hmm. that was put out by new jersey rep as part of a, a fundraiser mm -hmm. um that you guys did on as a video production and it was so well done and i was so i mean i had loved three men but this was this was next level. I mean, your performance mm -hmm. was phenomenal. The story is great. The, the video, I, oh yes. my gosh. And, and how lucky I was to have been able to caught that little limited run that they, that they did of that well, show. I just got a call from Gabe uh, last night. They want to put it out again. Oh, terrific. Do you know the dates the for that at all? I think they're going to do it again at New Jersey Rep as a like back by popular demand because a lot of people missed it in the four days. They didn't realize it was only running for four days. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they want to do it again. Oh, that's terrific. If you have dates for that by the time this podcast goes live, I mm -hmm. want to make sure that I yeah, have some information for people in the show notes. That yes. would be great. Yeah. 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 Find that out. Wow. What did, so, so you got pushed lovingly by Frank into right. doing, into doing that first one. Uh -huh. And I wonder what you what do you wish you had known as you stepped into that particular journey that phase of your journey yeah i thought a lot about that sort of uh, question you know what do you wish you had known and i think i think we learn what we need to know when we need to know it and 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 knowing things ahead of time can be dangerous i think you know if i there are things that i know now that if i had known them before I never would have done. Ain't that the truth? Things. You yes. know, when I was young, getting into, if I'd known what the acting profession was like and how people really moved up in it, I might have never gone there. And if I had known how hard it was going to be to write, memorize, rehearse, and perform a one person show, I may not have ever done it. Yeah. Now that I've done it, I think it's like pregnancy for women. It's hard, but but when after you do it, you're willing to do it again because you got something great out. Of it's it. and you forget too. Yeah, and you know, you forget. The, the mind, yeah. somehow the mind uh, erases yeah. a lot of the stuff that was that was hard for you, yeah. so that you will so that you will do it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> You look That's at this hilarious. kid you've got. Oh, I want another one of these. Oh, I want another yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I wonder as you were stepping into writing a one person play that mm -hmm. you're not even a person who likes one person plays, mm -hmm. what, what did you have to do to pull yourself forward through, through that process? Like did, were there new habits? Like what'd you do? How, how'd you, how'd you sit and pull that all together? I don't, I'm, I, my basic nature and approach to the work didn't change all that much. I'm, I'm sort of a workaholic and whatever I'm doing, I tend to get very focused on it. I think I had to convince myself that I would be able to have the goods. Ultimately, if I don't have them now, I will. If I do these things, if I go back to class and work really hard, 
on my voice, not just on acting, on my voice, on my movement, because I do Alexander technique and movement training. I've been doing that for years. I do voice work. If I do that, if I put in the work, it'll pay off. So I had to, I had to I had, and maybe I could have just done it without that, but I need, you know, I needed to know that, that I put in the time. Yes. I, I work in a similar way. For me, part of getting confidence in a process is stepping in and doing things and, and, and then getting the confidence that, oh, I did that. Okay. And now, and I learned this from that and let me try this next time mm-hmm. and, and so on and so on. And so what I think what you're saying is that you trust in the process to take you through to your desired ending. Right. Things that are good take work. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it is. And so you have to do the work. Oh, there is one thing I think that I did change. Uh, and I something I learned from being a speech and business writer uh, that I carried over into my, my theater work post that. As a speech, as a freelance speech and business writer, I became very focused on, uh, for want of a better phrase, customer satisfaction. I wanted my clients to value my work. I wanted my clients to know that they had what they needed to stand up there at that podium and get that job done, that they needed to get done using a speech. Yeah. And I did, it was, so it wasn't about me. It was writing that wasn't about me at all. It was totally about helping them. And as I went into doing these one person show things and doing that kind of theater, I thought, this is not about me either, even though it's from based on my experience and I'm telling a story that happened to me, it has to have relevance for the audience. It has to mean something for the audience. That's why the set designers, uh, John's comment about, you know, oh, I knew I had mentors and they were just like that. Mike Nichols said once in an interview that you can start talking about anything on stage. And if it's interesting or funny, you'll keep the audience for about maybe 90 seconds. But then at some point, the common audience brain, all the people in the audience's brain working together says, what does this mean to me? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an answer for that, they tune out. Mm-hmm. they'll go away so I the reason I didn't like one person shows so much I said before they all seem so me focused and so that's why when I started I said well I'm not writing about me I'm writing about these three men I'm not writing about me I'm writing about my late wife and our marriage together and her death and it's I think when you do that when you focus on other people in your in a solo show work the heart of the narrator comes out and is revealed without you having to just say me, 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 me all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audience gets to see who you are in relationship to these other people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think one of the things that kept me from doing um, the podcast for a long time was was that very worry about, I, I didn't want it to be all about me, me, me. And I really didn't feel like, why would anybody even like, what, what am I even doing? But once I, once I embrace the idea that, that this is really about everybody's journey and, and how we look at aging and where are we going from here? And suddenly I, I felt a uh, like mission based in a way, you know, that, that there was purpose to having these conversations. And I think that uh, any business, any endeavor that that's worth taking on for people, whatever it is, mm-hmm. if, if you can get to that real sense of mission and purpose behind it, mm-hmm. that whether you're selling widgets or mm-hmm. whatever you're doing, if you've got, you know, if you've got a, a real purpose behind it, I think that mm-hmm. that is going to be the thing that gives you longevity and energy to keep going. And, you know, something beyond your own self aggrandizement, you know, it's something about you that's beyond what you need. And yeah. it's going to help other people. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's what we're built to do. And when we find that, you know, it makes us happy people. Yeah. Sometimes it can be tough to find. And get through the, yeah, I knew there's frustrations and setbacks, but it helps you, you know, you can still get through them. Yeah. 
how, how do you feel now that you've done, you've done these two pieces? Where does that leave you now? That's a good question. Um, I get that. I think about that often because, you know, one, one of the things I hear a lot from people uh, when they've seen the show and they've really liked it or whatever, they'll say, well, where's this going to go? What's going to happen next? And I'm like, I, there is no next. There's next is whatever comes. I'm not trying to, I'm not on a campaign to, I, you know, I, some, some people who do this stuff, you know, will set up tours and will actually tour their one person show and go into there. I don't want to do that. I just want to create these things, find a way where I can have some kind of audience, either a festival or coming into a theater for one or two nights and doing it. And whoever's there and sees it, that's the people who were there and saw it. And that's good enough for me until the next time. And maybe there'll be a next time and maybe there won't. I, I really, one of the things that's great about being old is uh, you don't really have a future. So you have that burden lifted off you of having to plan for a future. I'm just doing what I do and I'll keep doing what I do until I can't do it anymore. And I don't have any career aspirations anymore. When I was a young actor, as a young playwright, I really wanted to be famous. I really wanted to be a known person in that. And I've uh, learned that that's not what it's about. It's about doing the work, doing good work, working with good people and taking what you can get when you can get it in the forms of, I remember when I was an actor, you know, I'd go off and do regional theater and be in like Shakespeare plays and Chekhov and Sean O'Casey plays. And my family thought I was wasting my life. But if I had done an under five on a soap opera or a commercial for, you know, for Oscar Mayer hot dogs, my family would have been struck dumb with admiration you can't get it from the general public you can't you get yeah you're right you you've got to find that uh the value from from your own desires right i mean there's something beautiful about theater in that it is ephemeral that from any night you know from any performance you do that was that one performance. Even if you're doing the same show the next night. That... It's always different. And if there's yeah. a cast change in the middle of the run, which happens, mm -hmm. I've been the cast change. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. The show changes. The whole show changes. Or if you remount the show later and one or two actors are different, that's a different show. Uh-huh. Completely. Absolutely. Yes. And there's something beautiful about that's that. That's the value out of theater is it's happening in front of you now and anything can happen. Yeah. You know, a movie is the same the 50th time you watch it as the first. And there's some comfort in that. Those are good products. I enjoy movies and TV, Absolutely. but it's not theater. That's why all this Zoom and video theater, even like, I, I really like the product we put out at New Jersey Rep because we handled it like a video piece. We didn't try to make it a theater piece on, on video. Right. You know, we, and that's we why it worked. It. That's, that's why it works. But I've taken part in and I've watched a lot of Zoom play readings and even like workshop kind of productions of plays. And it's just, it's, it can be interesting. It can be entertaining. It can keep, keep your attention for the hour and a half or two hours, but it's not the same thing. The total uh, value add of theater is the immediacy. Yeah. So I'm just, I, I, just basically, I'm waiting for the pandemic to be over and theater to come back. Oh, so many people. So yes. many people are waiting for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Mike, how old are you now? I just turned 69. You just turned 69. I have a question for you. Sure. What do you like best about this age that you're at right now? Uh, time. That I have time. Uh, it, a lot of that answer is based on my situation. It's not just the age, but I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm retired. I no longer do the speech and business writing. I haven't done it since 2014 or so. So I just enjoy the fact that I have the time to really focus on my artistic projects. My kids are grown and set up. They have careers and jobs and lives. Um, even, and my stepchildren, their staff also doing very well. 
they don't they, they love us but they don't need us that much uh although now that grandchildren are starting to come they are yeah they are starting to provide a little bit of that grandparent yeah you got two two grandkids now right yeah yeah Yeah. um i we moved uh, to philadelphia in part because we wanted to live in a city we were both of us had lived in the suburbs for years raising our children and we were both former actors in steph's case i'm still acting but you know not professionally really um we wanted to be in a city and I wanted to like sort of have a, a late life acting career here in Philly, which is much easier to do here uh, than it is in New York. There's a lot of theater here or was before COVID hit. Yeah, it's a good theater town. Um, I'm not sure if this is answering your question. What do I like about it, about being uh, this age? I like the fact <laughs> that I made it and that I'm healthy. <laughs> More and or less. you just got your first COVID shot. Just got my first right. uh, Pfizer uh, COVID nineteen vaccination. Um, yeah, I guess there's a certain calm that comes with uh, getting to a certain age and position. I, I mean, it could be the other way. I could still have to be forced to work if I didn't have you know enough uh, retirement savings and with social security and stuff like that. Um, I sort of backed into fiscal responsibility because I was a freelancer. I couldn't take anything for granted as a freelancer that the phone would keep ringing with clients. So I, we lived like Mahatma Gandhi, you know, and I was making a lot of money, but we were socking it all away, uh, a lot of it away. So that when the day came that nobody wanted my writing anymore, I would be okay and I'd be able to get by enough to figure something else out but that never happened so wow. I ended up with enough to retire on that's fantastic uh, and wow. that's that's that was luck I'm not fiscally that smart or responsible I had that was luck and being around at the right time yeah although it does sound like there was a certain amount of there was a choice there it sounds well, like to me I think there was an unconscious choice there. I grew up in very economically uh, challenging circumstances and, uh, and I never wanted to be old and poor. Mm-hmm. And I never really did anything to, to, uh, to make money consciously. You know, I never said, oh, I'm gonna go out and make a lot of money. That was never an issue for me. I just always wanted just enough to be able to pay my bills and take care of my family. And that was it. That's all I needed. Um, but somehow I, the stars came together in different ways too. Uh, so I, I enjoy the freedom of being able to focus on what I want. I'm fortunate, I'm fortunate too, in that I have something that I'm passionate about and want to keep doing. A lot of people retire and they're really at loose ends. I've seen that happen over and over again with some of the senior executives I worked for. Suddenly they were like adrift in the world, not knowing what to do with themselves. You can only yeah. golf or go fishing yeah. so much before you get bored. I mean, so I feel like being an artist, even with all its challenges and disappointments and the difficulty, especially the difficulty in, in, in the United States of being an artist, it's really hard in this country to be an artist. In other countries, they, they value that more highly. Mm-hmm. And uh, here it's like, it, everything's about money here. It's about if you're making a lot of money, then whatever you're doing is great. And if you're not, you're an idiot. So it's hard to get past that. And a lot of people have to fight that. That's one of the things that I think we were, I was talking to Stephanie this morning about doing the interview and about the challenges in midlife and, and beyond. And it's not just the arts. It's also, you know, starting a business or it can also be, you're making a ton of money at some law firm, but you really want to teach seventh grade history. And you leave the law firm to go do that. People think there's something wrong with you, right? In this culture, yeah. and you got—that's just another burden you have to fight. Is that not getting? Uh, I don't want to say regard or just the respect of making those choices of figuring out who you are and what you have to do, and then having the courage to go do it. Yeah, it really is about courage, and yeah. it really is about getting uncomfortable. It's, it's 
hard to be uncomfortable. I think it's harder to put yourself in uncomfortable situations as you get older. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think there's also the, the good thing with age is that there's a part of me that's like, well, I, I feel a time limit. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, well, it's kind of now or never to try yes. the things that, that I think I might want to step into. And mm -hmm. uh, as scared as I might be, how disappointing would it be to not even try? Right. If not now, when? It's yeah, exactly. It's much better to have tried when I uh, when I was doing the corporate speech writing thing. Every once in a while, one of my clients would come to me and say, "My daughter or my son wants to go to, to school for theater. He, he or she wants to be an actor, and I want you to talk to them and talk them out of it because <laughs> I know you were an actor and that you, now you're in the business world and and you're you're doing very well and you're a good role model for them." And I said. I would never talk someone out of going into the theater. I learned everything I needed to know to be successful in life from the theater. Mm -hmm. I learned how, to, I learned about history. I learned about literature. I learned about power and how power works. I learned how to judge people psychologically. See, you know, I learned how to walk into a room and, and, and speak and take, get that attention. That's something an actor has to do. An actor has to come on stage and own the stage. I learned how to come into a room and own the room. Yeah. And I, I would never have learned any of that if I hadn't gone into the theater. Right. And the collaborative nature of theater is a huge, I mean, the learning how to work on a team and, and, and put in your part of what's yes. going to be part of something bigger than you. Mm -hmm. um, is sports huge. does that too. I mean, if you're, yeah. in, if you're in sports, either amateur, you know, high level amateur or professional sports teaches you all that too. Yeah. Teaches you how to, how to work with people and how to, uh, um, look around you and know what's going on. What's next for you? What do you, what do you got going on? What are you excited about? I'm writing a book length memoir. It took me three months of writing it before I admitted that's what I was doing. Oh. Because I had so much insecurity and fear at the beginning. I'm thinking you're going to write, because it's like a fictionalized memoir. It's not entirely factual. It's truthful, but not factual. Uh huh. Uh, so it's a little. I mean, there's actually some sort of like magic realism in it, but it's based on my life. It's another thing about me, but I'm trying to find a place where it can be relatable to other people. And it's a big, messy project, like like novels and book length things are. And like, it's going to take a while, I think. Um, and when I first started thinking about it, I thought, well, you know, come on, the giants who are in this field, like James Joyce and, and Hemingway and Jane Austen, you're going to try to join that club. Who do you think you are? Right. I had to fight that for a long time. I kept saying, oh, is it, this is like another one-person show or it's, a, or it's a series of one-person shows that I'm writing because it's way too long for a one-person show. Um, that's what I kept saying to myself for months. And then the other day I said, talking to Stephanie, I said, my book. And she said, that's the first time you've said my book. Wow. I said, yeah. You rounded a corner. I guess so. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm writing this book um, based on my life and basically focused on my early life as a kid, something I almost have never, I've never written about or expressed because it was, a, I didn't have like a, a childhood of, you know, total, like Dickens, total penury or something. You know, I wasn't like no abuse, nothing really horrible happened to me as a kid. Uh, it just it was a very insecure childhood. And um, it was a strange childhood um, because uh, just things in my family that were weird and things that were going on that I wasn't, a, I was aware of, but I didn't know where it was coming from because I was the baby. I was always the youngest. Yeah, you were too young to understand the underpinnings. Too young to understand what and was the, going on. And, but yeah. later on, when I found out what the stories were, I felt like that's why that, that's why I was treated like that. That's why that happened. Wow. Uh, so I'm writing about that and I'm writing about now. So it's sort of like there's the stuff going on now, really, right now, pandemic, the political situation. And it jumps back and forth between me as a kid and me now. Um but the kid stuff's all first person and the 
late the current stuff is all third person. Oh, oh, all cool. narrator. But the so, first person, it's all this kid talking. Yeah. Oh, I like that idea for that structure. That sounds really intriguing. Yeah, and I'm not sure where you know I haven't really worked it out yet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Good luck with that. And, but yeah, every day I get on it and I move it ahead an inch, and that's okay. That. that there's a momentum. It's like a snowball going down a hill. After a while, you get enough. You don't have to worry about sticking to it. The momentum's taking you. But I haven't gotten there yet. I'm close, I think. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on. And that might keep me busy for the rest of my life. I don't know. And I'd like to do more acting. And I'd like to have some of my plays, like, like write some more plays and maybe have some of my older ones. I'm thinking of going back and rewriting them. Do you find that you're able to um, to step from one project over to another, dabble with that for a little bit, and then come back to the other thing? Yes. Like, yeah. Well, do you work on the same project all day, or do you like how do you structure that when you're trying to flip back and forth between? Um... If I'm hot on a project, it's driving itself, and I usually spend most of my time. But if something came up, like oh, we're interested in doing your new play, but we would like to see some changes. And you they're asking me to do some rewrites and I agree with them. I like the idea of the rewrites. I can jump right into that. I mean, that's one of the benefits again of having been a professional writer working on deadline for, for more than 25 years. It's, it's, it's like being a journalist or like the guest that you had who was an NPR uh, reporter. It's you get you learn how to jump from one project to another. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Like well, all the things that we've done in our life that, that suddenly it, in some new aspect of what we're doing, it's all informed by all that experience mm -hmm. of our, of our life and how it's prepped us for where we are right now and what mm -hmm. we're doing right now. Uh, and that's why, you know, it's, it's, I've just so, so love to hear when, there's those of us that like yourself that are inspired to keep digging and to mm -hmm. keep going into your process with whatever the outcome is going to be that it's more about process for you. It's more yeah. about, it's more about finding, Oh, what's next? Oh, that looks interesting. Let's go down that road. Let's go check that out. And yeah, then I, what does I, that provide you? I think life is about, becoming who you're meant to become mm -hmm. you spend your life working on yourself and if you're an artist that's that's an extra tool you have to do that and most people do it through their jobs or their families but i think when uh when you're a creative artist you're basically working on yourself very full time and i just feel all the time gratitude for how fortunate i've been I mean, one of the things that you, when you're saying is all the things that have happened to us make us who we are and help us later on. It's like having been grown up in hard, tough times, tough economic conditions as a kid, that's really helped me because I, it's like, like today, I said, I can, I don't have to worry financially. It's not because I have a whole lot of money. It's just that I li we live very simply. I don't, I've never learned how to be profligate. You know, because I always had to be careful with money. And that's when I was uh, an actor, you know, I, I, I got by, you know, I earned money as an actor, but it, it was hard to live on just that. Usually in between acting jobs, I had to have day jobs and then go back to acting. And it, it was hard, you know, you just learned to, to be frugal. And so... I'm glad. I'm glad now. As, as, as unpleasant as that experience could be when I was a child and then when I was a struggling actor, uh, I'm glad that it made me like that. Yeah. There's something to be said, I mean, for restrictions, you know, like that. Um, I think it, it, it forces you to, to get creative about mm -hmm. how you're going to do things. It's like if you have, you know, you're trying to do a theater production and you don't have a big budget. Well, mm -hmm. we, we can't just throw all, a bunch of money at this. Mm -hmm. So how can we creatively tell that story? I mean, I think you can take that same idea into your life and say, well, I have limitations, but how can I get creative and still do the thing that I want to do? Yes, small theater, small cheap theater is where I like to work. And I've worked at almost all, every level of theater. I've worked you know, in, in situations where there was a lot of money and people were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on the production. 
And that's, that's a burden. Because then you have money people in your ear all the time trying mm. to change things for the money reasons. And that's not what you want. In the cheap theater, it's like, okay, we got a space. You know, we, we, it's like, oh, let's put on a show. <laughs> it's really the, you, do make, you have to do make concessions and sometimes you really uh, have to sacrifice because you don't have the resources you need to. Uh, I know people who saw the original Angels in America at the Magic Theater in San Francisco who say that was by far the best production of that play that they'd ever seen. They had no money. Right? Yeah, Oscar Eustace directed that. Yeah, who runs the public now? But he, uh, they didn't have all the big special effects—an angel breaking through the ceiling or any of that stuff. They had to do it all with imagination. There you go. That's yeah. it, folks. Do it yeah. all with imagination. Yeah. I think that's it. I think we're done. Boom. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. With Thank me you. Today. Well, there you have it. I think my favorite quote of Mike's from this episode is when he said, it's about doing the work, doing good work, working with good people, and taking what you can get when you can get it. What more can we ask for, really? I know I tend to get all bound up, worrying and obsessing over the future and pushing for goals that are actually outside my control, when what's within my control is doing the work, showing up, and connecting with good people, like you. If you want to know more about Mike Foley, and if you want to stay up to date whenever he has new performances coming out, you can follow him on Facebook, and I am so excited that the video for My Dead Wife is available again for a limited time if you want to check it out. It is wonderful. I highly recommend it. And I'm going to do a little plug for New Jersey Repertory. It's their website where you'll find that link. As you know, theaters across the country are struggling to keep their doors open. So please consider a contribution to New Jersey Rep when you watch Mike's video. I'll have links to everything for you in the show notes. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 42. And while you're there, you can also find a link to that sign-up sheet for your free guide to five steps to your midlife reboot. Thanks so much for listening. Happy spring! I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.